0: Okay, so what are we what do we expect for today? Um we're going to review the, what the barriers to planful problem solving are. And you know, again the idea of planful problem solving. It's actually not very complicated. It's, you know, identifying what the problem is and like, you know, exploring what the the real problem is, as opposed to sometimes we focus on maybe a symptom of the problem, which is okay. It's not necessarily bad, but depends what position we're in to help. Maybe we only have the capacity and time um, to help with the symptom of the problem. And then we'll view that as the problem. That's absolutely okay. But sometimes if we're in the position to help somebody actually look at the source of the problem and try to problem solve around that, that's usually, that you know, of course, that's that's the ideal. But regardless, we want to identify what the problem is that we're going to be working on. We want to identify all of the possible solutions, even if the, some of those solutions may seem ridiculous or they may cause more problems than then resolve, that's okay. It's part of the brainstorming process. We want to be creative. We want to facilitate conversation with the person that we're working with. I do want to answer a quick question that popped up in the chat, and it says, Do you need to have completed day one to be here today for part two? You know, it, the, day two definitely builds upon day one, but we're happy to have you here. Um, I don't think it's dependent upon day one. There's some basics that uh, that we went over on day one, but yeah, absolutely welcome to be here and the slideshow that's available, um, you could always review that um, and, and kind of catch up. So I think you're absolutely fine if you have the ability to stay for part two. So thank you for that question. Um, going back to the problem solving process. Um, so yeah, then there's looking at all the different solutions, then there's thinking about, okay, which ones are, Actually, doable may actually be realistic, narrowing that list down, maybe doing a pros and cons list, um, and then from there making the decision, then following through with it. So, obviously, easier said than done. Um, But, and you know, as we talk about that process, again, it sounds so simple. And oftentimes, what happens is that a lot of different barriers pop up. and a lot of challenges that we may have not necessarily anticipated. So that's what we're gonna talk a little bit more about today, or what are some of those barriers? And the authors of the book, Problem Solving Therapy, the treatment manual, they developed these four toolkits, which is in that uh, really big power or uh, PDF document that I included, Um, it says link to the toolkit in the chat. that goes through and tries to address and provide tools for all the different problems or the different barriers that may come up in the problem-solving process. So we're gonna look at a few of those specific handouts today as well. Okay, um, so here are, some, here are some of the barriers that we're hopefully going to address today. So overthinking or rumination about the problem difficulties with controlling one's own emotional reactions, negative, inaccurate thinking, low motivation, and having a problem-solving style that is other than being planful, so that avoidant or the impulsive uh, problem-solving style. Um, I'm not sure, uh, sorry, I'm working through my notes. Okay, Um, I'm skipping through because I just want to see something really quick. Okay, great. I'm not as prepared as I probably should be. Okay, so these are the barriers that we're going to address today. And so before we do that, let's just go back to Raphael. I don't believe we necessarily finished talking about um, about the scenario and what all of those different solutions may be and, and how we might be able to help him. So I'm going to read this again just to refresh your memory, and then we'll have some discussion if any further discussion is needed, and then we'll we'll, we'll uh, get started again with today. And we could always reflect back on this example as we go through some of the toolkits. So Raphael wants to drink with his friends in the park, but if he returns to his housing drunk again, he'll get kicked out. He hasn't seen his friends for a week because his FSP team have been lining him up with multiple appointments and he started new medications that have been making him sleepy. However, he feels awake today and has nothing on his agenda. He knows that his friends are out there because they always are. And he hasn't had a drink in one week. He could really use a cold or a warm beer. So when we spoke last week, i remember a lot of the things that had come up around this were we we tried to identify some of the uh, like what what's the goal what are some of his goals for um, uh, for treatment or for his case management plan. Um, we talked about, you know, the socialization, he needs things to do, um, trying to remain in recovery. Um, there were a lot of different things that had, had come up, a lot of really good brainstorming around that. And so now I want to, uh, if you're able to, uh, remember all of those things, want to discuss what some of those possible solutions might be, again, some of those solutions as we go through them may or may not be realistic. They may or may not um, uh, cause additional problems, but that's okay. Uh, Just to get our brains going, what are some of those uh, possible solutions for Raphael? And I'm gonna put the vignette back up on the screen. So there we go. And I'll jot down some of the ideas that come up. Um, So if you were working with Raphael, what are some things if you were sitting down with him what are some things that might come up for you? In the uh, chat box, I see seek uh, a Zoom or an in-person 12-step meeting and an exercise regimen. Yeah, I think that's, those are both great ideas. And again, it's like just tossing things out, say, hey, would this be helpful? Maybe a 12-step meeting, whether it's in Zoom or in person. Um, an exercise, I think, can really be helpful in relieving stress and anxiety, um, of course, being physically fit. It might help create a peer network for him, depending on where uh, or what that exercise regimen looks like. What we would want to do with with Raphael um, is then kind of as we gather all of these different ideas, start to narrow them down to say, OK, do you think this one like do you want to keep this on like the the, the you know, the doable list, or should we maybe cross it off for now, or maybe put it in the parking lots, because it, it might not be the best idea. Um, but again, this is a process that you would do with Raphael. Um, it would be very collaborative, lots of brainstorming, um, and hopefully you could have a little bit of fun with it, if as long as Raphael's in the, you know, if, if that's his, his personality. Okay. So thank you for participating in that. And here, so we talked about CBT uh, a lot last week and I wanna, again, make that connection um, between CBT and problem-solving therapy, particularly with the case of Raphael. So here is that same model that we looked at of CBT. So when an event is perceived, so in this example, the problem gets identified, And we see that for Raphael, his friends are hanging out at the park drinking. He wants to join them. So that's basically, well, that's the event. Um, And then he's identifying the problem there because if he joins them, he may not, you know, be sober. Um, It may be triggering for him. So here that automatic thought is created and it says, I can't be with my friends because I have no control or autonomy. Um, So, as we discussed last week, those automatic thoughts often come up um, without, like with, without us really thinking a whole lot about them. They just kind of pop up for us. So they're not always completely accurate. So here in this, in this statement, um, there may be some inaccuracies and in that his thinking might be negative and it might be inaccurate. So does he truly have no control um, or does he not have any autonomy? us as helpers would hopefully try to diffuse some of those statements and create more positive, more accurate statements. Um, Now, based on that thought, an emotional reaction is experienced. So for Raphael, he may be experiencing desire, anticipation, disappointment and anxiety, because remember he's basing, those emotions are coming up for him based on that perception that he has no control or autonomy yet he wants to hang out with his friends. So perhaps one of the barriers that he's experiencing is difficulties with controlling his emotions. So those emotions of desire and disappointment, um, perhaps that's one of those barriers that we would wanna work with him through. Um, And even some of the activities that we were just talking about regards to brainstorming and and creating different or possible solutions, um, that may actually reinforce his feelings of autonomy. If you do that with him as opposed to for him, he may think, oh, you know what, actually, okay, I can come up with some good ideas. Um, I do have some control. looks like I have a ton of choices. Not all those choices are are, are good, Um, not to put judgment on them, but but it looks like I he has autonomy and he has the ability to choose. And then a behavioral response takes place. And I put a question mark, cause we don't know exactly what is going to end up doing around this. Um, and let's see, oh, and I just included at the bottom, maybe some of the challenges that he may encounter um, as he goes through this process, such as having low motivation to start one of those new programs, like whether it's an exercise regimen or going to a 12 step meeting. Perhaps he continues to avoid, maybe he actually kind of isolates and instead doesn't go to see his friends, but doesn't do anything else either. Um, Or maybe he's impulsive and says, fuck it, I'm going out and having a beer, I'm going to be with my friends, don't care what happens. Um, So yeah, that is that scenario plugged into a problem solving and a CBT uh, outline. Okay. So now let's go into some of the, uh, oh, and uh, Christopher, thank you for putting this. Uh, Internet says there's no laws regulating sales of non-alcoholic brew, but the state strongly uh, recommends that uh, stores don't sell them to minors. Thank you. That's very, that's actually really helpful. I'm curious to how that plays out in practice, Um, but cool. Thanks for doing the research on that. Okay, so introduction to the four toolkits. So we have four different ones. Um, Toolkit number one is the problem solving multitasking. Then we're going to look at the SSTA method, which of course I will describe in in detail when we get there. Then we're going to look at the healthy thinking and positive imagery. And then we'll look at a planful problem solving style, which we've already uh, discussed quite a bit, but then uh, but we'll just kind of do an overview of that uh, as we get to that section. Okay, so let's look at toolkit one. This is the problem solving multitasking. So the goal of this toolkit um, and Uh, And just to reference, if you have that PDF document, um, it's pages 35 through 37, where they actually spell out what problem-solving multitasking is. And that material can uh, can be given to the person that you're working with, or it's something that you can just review with them, or you can just read it yourself and then share some of the information, whatever works best with the person that you're working with. Um, But this toolkit focuses on three different strategies to support an individual in focusing on one aspect of a problem at a time. And so what this toolkit is trying to address is that idea that oftentimes we get stuck in rumination. Um, We think about a problem and then our minds take that problem and we keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And oftentimes it downward spirals. You notice that if you've ever been caught in this pattern yourself, we never upward spiral. We never start to think more positively about it. It's almost always going downhill. Um, And so we recognize that rumination and overthinking can be a barrier to problem solving because now we're trying to solve something that may not even be the actual problem because we've maybe catastrophized, or maybe we've, um, you know, pulled in other elements that really don't have anything to do with it. I I use, an uh, when I talk about rumination um, with clients, I, I like to use an example. I think most people can, um, uh, this example resonates with, and if it doesn't, my apologies, I might waste a couple minutes of your time. But I think about, so like, uh, again, just to re- Uh, remind you like rumination, like we keep thinking and thinking, expecting that we're going to find a different solution or the right solution. And it's rare that we actually do. So the analogy is, um, I used to do this when I was younger. I don't really do this much anymore as an adult, but like you're hungry. And so then you go to the fridge, you open the refrigerator door and you look, you don't see anything and you just keep looking. You still don't see anything. And then like after three or four minutes of staring into the refrigerator, Uh, of course, nothing is popping out because it's a refrigerator and things don't typically move in there. You know, when I was a child and I would do this, then I would get the, you know, I'd get yelled at and say, why are you trying to refrigerate the entire house? Um, Nothing is going to appear while you're staring into this fridge. And I tend to think about that like rumination. Like we just keep looking, hoping that something is going to pop out at, at us. Like I can maybe make a snack out of some leftovers that are a week old and Maybe here's some condiments that are in there. Like, we just think that something is going to uh, solidify for us. And typically it doesn't. Every once in a while, I say maybe 5%, I have no evidence to support that statistic, but maybe 5% of the time, you know, rumination, like, oh, okay, I actually did get a new insight that's helpful, but it's rare. Same with staring into the refrigerator, hoping that a snack solidifies occasionally something like, oh, okay, I could get creative. I found a few ingredients. Most of the time I end up closing the door after wasting energy and like, okay, I guess I'll just wait to my next meal instead of looking for a snack because there's clearly nothing in there to uh, to eat. So um, hope that made sense. If not, again, sorry about that. <laughs> Most of my clients that resonates with when we talk about rumination. Um, so here is one of the first uh, the first tools for dealing with rumination. And this honestly is one of my favorite ones. And it's one of the more difficult ones to do. But externalizing. Externalization is the idea that like when we we're thinking about the problem and it's just ruminating in our minds, let's get it out of our heads and put it somewhere. Let's put it to the side. Um, as you probably know that like when we tell ourselves to stop thinking about something, it usually doesn't work. We just end up thinking more and more about it. Um, And so this isn't necessarily going to stop anyone from thinking about their problem, but it tends to have this effect of like our brain Gets permission to let it go because we've put it in a safe place. Sometimes we don't. We want to keep ruminating because we don't want to let any of these ideas or thoughts disappear. Like, what if we forget about it? Like, what if we have this insight and then we don't remember it? Well, if we put that problem out there, let's write it down. Let's write down all the different thoughts we're having about it. It can have that subtle effect of giving ourselves internal permission to say, okay let's let it go, we have it in a safe place. So that could be, a safe place could be you know, a journal, you could use an online application or you could use like old school paper journal. Um, it could just be a piece of paper, it doesn't even matter. Um, it doesn't have to be anything really formal. Um, but it, you know, think about your own processes for when you don't wanna forget something, what do you do? I mean, I tend to use post-its quite a bit and it's around, it's the same idea. It's, I don't want to forget this important thought. I don't want to forget this important piece of information. So I want to allow myself to put it someplace safe, so I don't have to focus on it. Um, And so I don't know if anyone has seen, well, I'm sure many of you have seen the Harry Potter movies, and I don't remember which Harry Potter movie this is from. Um, They all start to blend together, but uh, Professor Dumbledore is using, I don't remember what it's called. (laughs) but he has a magical spell where he's pulling memories out of his brain and puts them in a big bowl because he has so much knowledge and so many memories and experiences that he can't keep them in his brain all the time so he puts them in the big bowl where they're always accessible but he doesn't have to keep them in his mind so it's exactly what i think about when i uh, uh, when i uh, when i talk about the idea of externalizing um i'm curious if any if anyone has any questions about externalization and and if anyone has any ideas um, aside from the things that I've mentioned of how to kind of have a place to store your thoughts um, for for safekeeping, if you will. Oh, and last thing, the uh, where and how externalization is done. It has to be a process that one trusts. So you know, if you're going to put your thoughts like in an app on your phone, but then you know you typically don't check that app ever again and you pick it up like once a month, you know, that may not be a trusted place. So you wanna make sure that if you're gonna put your thoughts onto something, you know that it's in a safe place, a place that you check often, um, that you know is private from other people. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I think those are the, the main things around that idea. Okay. And so visualization is a technique that can uh, that can be really, really helpful, particularly to relieve stress. And the other reason I really like visualization, not, uh, I mean, the stress relief piece is of course nice, but also it gives something else for that individual to focus on. So if there's a lot of rumination taking place, like we had said before, it's, you know, if I say, like, let's try to not think about it, it's really difficult to not think about it. Um, but instead of, so like, instead of trying to take thoughts away, let's add new thoughts. And in a way, it sort of dilutes it. So I, there's a, a I did not create this example. And it came from one of my mindfulness um, Buddhism books. And I don't remember which one. So my apologies that I can't cite this, but you know, if, if you have a teaspoon of salt and, uh, you put it in your glass of water and drink it, that water is going to taste really, 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 really bad. However, if you take that same teaspoon of salt and put it into a pond, And then drink the pond water, which of course is not really recommended either. But, anyways, the point being, if you put it in that same amount of salt in a bigger volume of water, it gets diluted and it doesn't have that same harshness. You probably won't even notice it at all. So, same with our thoughts. If we have a lot of thinking around this problem, maybe a lot of negative thinking, instead of trying to uh, remove those negative thoughts. Let's add new thoughts in. So those negative ones start to get a little bit diluted. And visualization is one way to do that. It's saying, you know what, you don't have to start, you don't have to stop thinking about your problem, allow it to be there. But why it's, while it's there, let's go through this visualization. Um, and so again, giving permission to hold on to that thought, so that anxiety of like, oh, I have to stop thinking about this, that can go away. And instead, we're just shifting our focus to something else. So there is a handout, page 38 through 40 of the Problem Solving Instructional Materials um, has a visualization. Um, and it's, there's this called Go on a Vacation in Your Mind, Visualize Your, Visualize to Reduce Stress. Um Oh, great. Thank you. So, stop. Stop thought. Observe before you, you proceed. So, yeah, it's a re- uh, uh, it's a really helpful way to think about um, uh, kind of changing those thought patterns. That's a really great acronym. So, thank you for bringing that up. Um, okay. And I don't know, has anyone used any of the mindfulness apps like Headspace or uh, I think there's one called Calm? Has anyone done any of those? Okay, yeah, I see a few, yes. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, so those are really good examples of visualizations or guided imageries, or you could just view it as as meditation, but it has that dual effect of just like changing the thought uh, pattern and also providing a degree of relaxation as well, so very good. Okay. And so then the, uh, yes, thank you, Victoria. UCLA does have a, we actually have, there's a mindfulness department um, and there's a, uh, they also have an application uh, for your phone that does mindfulness. So I think if you just Google UCLA mindfulness, it should come right up. The other uh, tool within this first toolkit is called simplification. And this is a a relatively self-explanatory, but it's really about breaking the problem down into smaller components. And if we look at Raphael and what he was experiencing, um, there actually were quite a few different components to that problem. Um, Like maybe it was socialization, maybe it is about dealing with um, cravings to to drink alcohol again. Maybe it is about finding new activities. Like that situation can really be broken down into much smaller pieces. Um, and then you could even prioritize, okay, which one do you wanna work on first? Um, always putting that into the client's uh, lap of like, this is your decision. If we wanna help solve some problems, happy to be here for you, but I I, want to rely on you to provide that uh, feedback of where you want to start. So not only does this just make the problem solving process a little bit easier, but if somebody achieves something, even if it's really small, it does add a bit of confidence. Like, okay, I could achieve something, I did it, maybe I could do something a little bit bigger the next day. And this, I find this is really helpful with low motivation um, uh, clients in general. And it, You know, I do this all the time of setting really tiny goals um, with the people that I work with. Of course, you know, we develop those tiny goals collaboratively, Um, but I have, you know, for example, I'm working with someone with a very, very uh, significant post-traumatic stress disorder, very significant trauma history, I should say, and sometimes um, she's unable to leave the house, um, thinking like being stuck in someone e- either experiencing some flashbacks or rumination. And, um, so we've, you know, therapy for her gives her a lot of motivation. And so why we were talking in session about this, uh, as we were coming near the end of our therapy session, I checked in, I'm like, are you feeling like there's a little bit motivation. She's like, oh yeah, definitely. I always feel much more motivated. And I'm like, okay, well, knowing that that motivation most likely is going to start to subside after the session ends. Is there anything you could do with that before it starts to go away? And uh, she didn't really know, but I know one of the things that she loves to do is to go on a walk with her dogs. And she hasn't done it for a while. She hasn't, she didn't do that for, for quite some time. So we talked about simply going on a walk with your dogs right after therapy, not even thinking about it. Don't think about all the challenges that might come up or how you don't really feel like walking or, you know, maybe the dogs are going to be pains in the butts, but just, just go, just grab the leashes, put them on it do the thing. And that was really, really helpful for her. She was able to do it without a whole lot of thought. And once she was out there with her dogs, she felt great. Um, the pit in her stomach, which she describes it, she said it went away. It came back. Of course, it came back, but it went away for that moment. And that sort of reinforced this idea that she can make positive changes. Um, She does have motivation to do things and she does have control over making herself feel better um, using certain coping mechanisms. So we are going to go through Another example, and uh, I'll read through and then I'll ask some questions. Like, um, you know, we'll process this through a bit. So, this is about Patricia. She's 25, lives with her mother, and relies upon her mother for care. Patricia frequently gets into arguments with her mom because she feels like she does not get enough privacy. Patricia's mom admits that she is heavily involved in Patricia's life but that is to make sure she takes care of her medication or she takes her medications and keeps up with her hygiene. Patricia most recently yelled at her mother when her mother asked Patricia to take a shower. Patricia called her mother a bitch and said that she can smell any way she wants to. Patricia is now sad because she feels like no, uh, like she has no one in her life that understands her. So based on some of the things that we just talked about, What are some tools that you can pull from what we just uh, reviewed that you think might be helpful for Patricia? And actually, maybe take a step back. Um, What do you think it, it would be maybe a couple realistic goals for Patricia. We'll start there, and then we'll look at okay, what are some tools that we can use to help um, maybe start the process of getting through these barriers. Okay, so that's toolkit one. Those are the things that the resources in that handout will help you to hopefully battle through—not uh, battle, but you know, work through with your client. This next toolkit is really, really important. And it's the SSTA method and it's a little bit similar to the STOP acronym that was posted in the chat a little bit earlier. Now SSTA stands for stop, slow down, think, and then act. Now always easier said than done but This is a great acronym to teach the people that you work with and to help them understand um, how our brains work. It does rely on a lot of uh, psychoeducation in this step. And this toolkit really focuses on regulating our emotion and the importance of being able to make decisions when we're not necessarily activated. And, oh, excuse me so I'm going to talk about that. Sorry, I'm just looking through my notes because I oftentimes will jump ahead. And yeah, okay. So, um, and I was going to jump ahead. So here we have pages 41 through 44 uh, in the instructional materials and patient handouts. outs um, There's uh, materials on how to introduce and talk to uh, clients about the stop, slow down, think and act method. Um, Again, this is to help people be aware of their emotional reactions, not necessarily suppressing or avoiding, um, but acknowledge what that is. And I like to, I'll say more on this later, I believe, but I always view our emotions as valid, even if they feel as if they're super intense, or even if we're having an emotion to something that maybe isn't so much based in reality, the emotion is always valid. Um, It's up to us or up to our clients to work together to try to figure out what is the emotion telling you. And once we figure out what the emotion is telling us, then we might be a little bit better informed for how we could respond to it. our emotions are there to help us make decisions. Um, however, we shouldn't necessarily base our decisions on the emotion. They should be uh, they could they could be informants, they could provide us some important information, they might tell us something about a value that we hold. Um, and then we could use that emotion to make a little bit of a different decision. Um, And this process also helps us to uh, better process stressful situations. And so... When I want to revisit that emotion piece where we use emotions to better inform decision-making, but not base our decisions on that emotion. Um, thinking about, I use this analogy a lot, you may have actually heard this before, but I think about the idea of a smoke alarm. And when a smoke alarm goes off in my apartment, um, it, it's rare that there's actually a fire. Um I don't simply ignore it, though, because it's kind of impossible to ignore. Um, And like when it goes off, I do like, oh, my, like, is there something burning? Is there smoke? Do I smell anything? Um, Typically, there's nothing happening or maybe like popcorn was burnt or something like that. Um, The alarm doesn't necessarily go off. But we have a little bit of a better awareness. Now, if we just responded to the smoke alarm at face value, we'd be evacuating every time that thing goes off because we're not really thinking or, or trying to figure out if it's what it's telling us. But once we figure out, like, what is it alerting us to, um, then we can make a better decision. Um, maybe it's simply that, okay, uh, you put the popcorn in too long, open up a couple windows so the place. Uh, airs out so it doesn't smell like burnt popcorn Um, or maybe there is actually a fire and you need to get out. Maybe we have no idea what's causing the smoke alarm and that too could be a reason to like, okay, let's, I'm going to leave the building just to make sure. Um, But we we don't necessarily take it at face value. We want to listen to what it's telling us and then make a decision based upon that. Okay. So, uh, I'll probably revisit all of those concepts. I often <laughs> jump ahead, like I was saying. Um, but the first part is to stop. And when I, re- when I say stop, it, it's not stop thinking, it's just simply, it, it, you might even better say pause. Like what are the thoughts going on? What experience are you having internally right now? Um, so that way we can assess the situation a little bit better and then make a decision. However, stopping does require that an individual recognizes what their triggers are. So oftentimes we need some sort of reminder. And so a, an example I have, so I'm working with a, uh, with a young man who often recognizes that he gets super, super defensive um, when he's talking to his significant other. Um, and... We talk about the process of, like, okay, you know, what would it be like to not go in defensive mode right away, but to be able to pause hear what she's saying to him before he reacts and be able to recognize, like, what is that triggering to me? Am I responding to an old relationship or some of those old negative thoughts? Or am I really responding to this present situation? And so what he did uh, to serve as a reminder for him uh, is he put, he has, I actually have these two. These are like those little fidget spinners. Um, Cause I tend to get fidgety. So I'll sometimes, you know, play with this during meetings or something like that. Well, he has one like this, that's a little bit thinner and it fits perfectly over his finger. So he wears it on a, as a ring and it serves two purposes. And one, it allows him to fidget, <laughs> but it's also this constant reminder of if you get triggered to be defensive, like just take a moment to think about it. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to change the world. He may still pause think about what's being said and then get defensive. That's okay. It takes practice, but he has a reminder that's there for him. Um, and the reminders could be unique for every person. They could be subtle, such as something like this. Nobody know is going to know. And like with his, like you can't even tell that it's a fidget spinner. It looks like kind of a nice ring. Um, because you may not want people like, oh, why do you have this posted on your shirt that says, you know, don't be defensive. (laughs) Like that might be a little obvious and may not want to have that. Uh, So finding something that's subtle. Um, The other, uh, the woman that I was talking about earlier um, with a very significant trauma history, uh, one of the, uh, for her, I uh, asked, we, we talked about reminders and she has a lot of bracelets on one hand, but her other hand, she wears no bracelets. And so I challenged her to wear one of her bracelets on that other arm. I know it's gonna piss you off. That's what I told her. And she's like, yes, it will. Cause I don't like bracelets on that, on that wrist. I'm like, well, good. Because that's going to be a constant reminder to, check what you're thinking and feeling, particularly when you notice a trigger. And, um, and then that actually that was, that was helpful for her. It wasn't 100%, but she would you know feel that bracelet, like, oh, I wish I didn't have this on and remember why it was there. Um, does anyone else have any ideas for what might be a helpful reminder for somebody to check if they're being triggered in the moment? Uh, just to remind you of this step. Uh, first step is to stop. Usually needs a reminder, not always, but when someone's feeling triggered, when someone's feeling that anxiety about the problem that they want to solve, let's first take a moment to pause Whatever is necessary to get you to remember that. Okay. And then slowing down. So this one is really, really, really tough. Um, slowing down. So, I I always use the word activated for some reason that that resonates a lot with me and it seems to resonate a lot with the people that I work with. Like instead of saying, oh, you're feeling fear or you're feeling anxious or you're feeling angry. um, Let's just like, we don't even need to identify the feeling necessarily, but when you notice that you're feeling activated, um, that's, that's that emotion. And we could put a word to the emotion later, but the idea that we're activated can be really Helpful, and in truth, we are activated. Our sympathetic nervous system is starting to kick in. It's recognizing that um, that we need to respond to something in some way. And when we're activated, uh, that's when you know it, it, it has to do with the fight or flight response there are chemicals being released into our bloodstream that actually do make it difficult to think critically. Um, that is not a like subjective uh, uh, piece of information. Like there are tests that demonstrate that our ability to exe- uh, to access our executive functioning um, gets diminished a bit. And we need to do, it, it's hard, but we need to try to deactivate a bit so we could access some of that critical thinking again. So if we're working with any of the individuals in our examples, it may be really difficult for them to come up with solutions or possible solutions that address the problem if they're feeling very activated in that moment um, because they may not be able to access all of their executive function. So we want to try to slow that down. Honestly, the best thing to do in, well, and this is more of an opinion, but deep breathing is certainly one of the most helpful things we always we can always do it it's always with us and it actually can start that parasympathetic nervous system process in which our body begins to release chemicals that counteract the cortisol and adrenaline um so we can begin to calm down a bit now we don't need to be perfectly calm but calm enough that we can access some of that thinking i was just working with somebody on Monday, yeah, today's Wednesday, on Monday, she had a job interview, and it went well, but at first, she's like, I forgot, like, I did all the studying, and I just completely forgot all of this stuff, and I talked to her, I'm like, well, what did you do to, um, okay, what, have, what did you do to, to calm yourself before the interview? And she's like, well, I you know, I reread all the notes that I wanted to remind myself. I put stickies, it was an interview over Zoom. So um, she's like, I put reminders around the screen. She's like, I memorized certain things. Uh, she's like, but then once I started the interview, my mind just went blank. And um, I'm like, okay, so it sounds like you do good prep work, but what did you do to help calm yourself? Like, I get that preparation does have a calming effect because you're gonna feel more prepared for whatever it is that you're about to do. But what about the deactivation piece, like taking a couple of deep breaths prior to doing a meditation or a guided imagery right before that job interview, just so that you're in a bit of a calmer place and you can access some of that executive function. Um, And so our brains can critically think a little bit better. so, slowing down can be really, really important. And that's where the reminder again comes into play because people may not remember that they need to slow down. So, having a reminder say, okay, I need to stop and I need to start to slow my nervous system down so I can think a little bit clearer. So in the toolkit, there's pages 45 through 46 and 47 through 49 and 50 to 53. Um, So it goes through deep breathing, mindful meditation, and deep muscle relaxation. Um, There are some narratives there. And you could do this with the people that you serve. You could share these handouts with them, whatever you think is best for, uh, for the individual that you are working with. And I'm sure many of you also have other resources, or other meditations, or other tools to help people to slow down. Um, one of the tools that I often use, and we I, we talk a lot about this <laughs> in our trainings. So, if you've been to a lot of our trainings, particularly my colleague Jean, we always uh, uh, we always tend to revisit this grounding exercise, but. It's just that I've used it and it just all, it's like really works well in the moment with people that I've worked with. So it's the five, four, three, two, one. Um, You start with with five and ask them, what are five things that are present right now that you can see? And so, you know, I would say that I can see my little fidget spinner. I have my pen. It's a blue fountain pen. I love this pen. I have my coffee cup that is sadly getting to the end of coffee, which makes me sad. I have a picture of my deceased dog from a few from three years ago. That's my girl Flo. And let's see, I have computer screens, so that's not exciting. I have my cell phone. Here we go. Um so what and then so after we identified five things. Then we want to go to four things. What are four things that you can physically feel with your body? And for me, I can feel my thigh is a little bit tight because my leg has been crossed over it for, I guess, for an hour now. (laughs) So when I get up, I'm going to be all like tingly and not be able to walk. Um, My elbow is on an elbow rest. Um, My T-shirt, I could feel it like on my chest. And um, I could feel my watch. And then I won't go through uh, personally through the other ones, but then you want to say, what are three things you can hear? Um, What are two things that you might be able to smell? What's one thing you might be able to taste? Um, So going through all five senses, decreasing the number and what it did. So like why I was doing that while I was like showing you my fidget spinner and my pen it's not that I intentionally stopped thinking about other stuff, but I, but I did, I stopped thinking that I'm doing a training and I'm like looking around for things. Um, and, and then I'm just saying a, a brief sentence about it. And it's so, I found this to be really, really powerful because then after I do it with somebody, I'll ask them, were you thinking about, uh, rethinking you about your problem at all or your trauma? No. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. It's back to that diluting. We're not removing thoughts, we're just adding new thoughts. And this is very present-focused. The only caution that I would share with you around doing the five, four, three, two, one, and I actually demonstrated what not to do, in that I picked up a picture of my dog who is you know, been deceased now for three years. And that pulls me out of the present moment. Now I'm thinking about the times I spent with my dog. <laughs> so that's the only caution. Like you don't necessarily want to ask, like if they pull a picture, like that's fine, but you don't want to necessarily go down the road of like, oh, what does that picture, when was that from? What was that like back then? Like, cause we want to stay present. So that's the only thing that I would caution you about. Okay. And Oh, thank you so much, Christina. Um, I see that there was a question about the toolkit and that got placed in there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Okay, so why don't we do a, a quick example. So this is Nikki. She is a client of the FSP program. She's consistently urged by her case manager to find employment. Nikki has made a lot of progress with the FSP program. She used to be homeless, didn't know that she was HIV positive, and exhibited delusions of grandiosity. Now her delusions are well under control with a monthly injection, and she is aware of her HIV status. She's even taking medications, which have made her HIV undetectable. However, she's been feeling frustrated every time the case manager asks about finding work. Nikki gets defensive and says that she can't, uh she can't find work because she's disabled. Nikki is scared that if she works she won't be able to receive Medi-Cal anymore and her HIV will eventually kill her. So in this vignette Nikki is feeling uh I think we it's fair to say she's feeling triggered by her case manager. Not the case manager's fault um you know, the case manager didn't know that that is necessarily triggering, but Nikki gets defensive. So what are some things that you can do um, or what are some suggestions in this vignette that would help Nikki to stop, whether she needs a reminder or not, and to slow down before she goes into that place of feeling defensive? Okay, so being activated. When I was reviewing this, I don't remember why I put a cat picture in here. I'm sure I had some sort of connection when I was writing this, but now I don't remember what it is. But, anyways, it's a cute cat picture. Okay, so being activated, I talked about this before, but when we're stressed, our stress response system gets activated. Um, it produces a variety of physiological responses, and typically those are geared to help us in the situation. However, the stress response also stifles our executive functioning. So we, again, we've talked a lot about that. And that's where we, like our executive function is what we use to develop solutions to complex problems. So that's why the stopping and, and thinking can be really helpful. So we're gonna go into a little bit more depth. And I don't know, has anyone read this book? It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, By Daniel Kahnman. I might have said that incorrectly. Um, But it's a really, uh, oh, great, Jill. Yeah. Uh, A really, really helpful book that talks about our thinking processes. And the author uses system one thinking and system two. Now, the Uh, problem-solving creators, they use low-road thinking and high-road thinking. And for some reason, those just didn't resonate so much with me. So I really like this system one thinking and system two thinking. Um, Let's look at what those are. So system one thinking, it happens immediately. It helps us to keep us safe. It helps us function in the world. It uses emotions to guide thoughts and behaviors, It also uses all of our perceptions. Um, like, we rely on this. I mean, like, driving, I think, is probably the best example, um, like, when we, you know, you see a car in front of us, we automatically stop. Um, it's based on our perception. A little bit of fear, not a whole lot, but some stress is injected to motivate us to, to respond really quickly. Um, I mean, and it is all part of that fight or flight response, but to varying degrees. Um, but yeah, we, we don't really think about it. It happens really automatically. Um, and uh, and also, Like in other ways to view that system one thinking, particularly around getting defensive. Um, You know, in in that example, with I think the example name was Nikki, um, as soon as the case manager brought up the idea of finding a job she would get defensive. So she was using that system one thinking because her brain was automatically interpreting the idea that if you get a job, it's gonna lead you down this road of um, losing benefits and then you're not gonna be able to survive because you won't be able to pay for your medications. And like, so like this emotion brought up all these feelings and thoughts and and for whatever, uh, and, and it's motivational, like our emotions are there to motivate. I mean, if there's, if you have a decision and one of the options is motivated by fear and the other one, there's not a whole lot of motivation behind, like we're going to use the one that's the fear is pushing us to follow. Okay. So uh, before I go into the illusion to help guide, uh, remember that system one thinking also uses our perceptions to create this picture. So we don't have to think too hard about it. And so illusions are a really good way to think about this. So Here on your screen um, is a weird picture of like a chess table and there's a green cylinder on it. It's casting a shadow and there are two little ants on the chess table. Now, some of you may have done this, um, have seen this illusion before. It's a pretty common one. It's one that still like throws me off so much. But my system one thinking um, it creates this image of the chessboard of a cylinder because it uses like white, it uses like shading, it creates, it uses familiar images to me. So I don't really think about it. I just, the image comes to my mind and I say, okay, yeah, it's a can on a can on a table. It's casting a shadow. And so when I think about those two blocks, so there's an ant in a block on the top and an ant in a block in the middle, those two, two blocks are exactly the same color. Now, you most likely cannot see it right now because your brain is using system one thinking and it's telling you like, no, it's a can on a table, it's casting shadow, and those two blocks are clearly different colors. Um, But they are absolutely the same color. And so if I close in and I put this little gray strip there, you'll see that the gray matches. Now that gray strip is the same color throughout. um, And you'll see how each block is exactly the same color. It's almost impossible to see when we're looking at it from this perspective because our system one thinking is creating this image for us. And thank God for system one thinking um, because we don't really have the time to sit there and figure out perspective and what our visual perceptions are are telling us. They're saying like, no, this is what the picture is, and there you go. Um, But upon closer investigation, using our system two thinking, recognizing that this is a two-dimensional drawing and uh, and how it was drawn using shadow and light uh, created this illusion. Um, And so there you go, this one, this illusion still tends to blow my mind. Um, I remember it frustrated the hell out of me because I'm like, they are different and I would print it out and fold it. And I'm like, oh my God, they're the same. I don't understand how that works. <laughs> so I actually did a lot of research around it just because I was so fascinated with that. Um, but it's a hopefully a helpful visual for how system one and system two th- uh, thinking works. Okay, to talk a little bit about our emotions. Um, A lot of this I've already mentioned, but they alert us to act in a specific way. They're motivational. Remember, think back to fight or flight and, you know, back to our caveman days and, uh, you know, fight or flight there kept us alive. If there was a tiger, like it would fight or flight would say, okay, you're afraid now do something. And then with that fear, it would motivate us to either run or to try to fight. Um, And again, that's all to keep us alive. And so we still have those mechanisms. They just and they still work in those very extreme fight or flight uh, ways, but they also work in much smaller um, uh, smaller doses, if, if you will. And so our emotions, we want to use them. like they can be helpful even though sometimes they feel out of control. sometimes they maybe um, are really uncomfortable or really intense but they can be really helpful and we want to listen to what those feelings are trying to tell us and try to learn what the message is. So there is a handout in the packet pages uh, 10 to 13 it's called listening to your feelings what your emotions might be telling you. I really like this handout. I think it's really helpful. Um and here's uh, some examples of what emotions might be telling us. So let's say that you're feeling, you know, you a relationship ended, and now you're feeling grief. Now, oftentimes when we're feeling grief after the relationship ended, it's really easy to assign all of these narratives to it. We might say, gosh, I'm a failure, You know, no one loves me, um, I'm unlovable, I, I really screwed up. Like we could allow that grief to send that message to us or we could take a step back, we could stop, slow down, and think, we could think about what that emotion means. And here in this example, it may mean that you hold an important value regarding relationships, trust and companionship. The emotion is simply letting you know that 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 need in the relationship is not getting fulfilled. So it's a very different way of looking at a situation. Instead of assigning all of this negative narrative to it, which is a really common thing to do, we're looking at what message might exist there. Um, Anxiety when you have a big project at work, Um, the anxiety may not be, well, the narrative that is really easy to think about is, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm gonna get this completed. I can't do this. I don't have enough time um, or I don't know how to do this. I, I was never trained. I suck at my job, whatever. Um, those are all some of those negative narratives that we assign to that anxiety, but instead we could pay attention to it. And maybe the anxiety is trying to motivate you to complete a task. So you keep your job. The anxiety is letting you know that you value uh, being a hard worker and you want that fulfilled. Um, a different way to look at what that emotion is saying. And then finally, fear when you hear about the pandemic. um, The fear is perhaps reminding you that you need to be safe, protect yourself and others from getting ill. Um, So instead of assigning negative narratives to it that come from automatic thoughts and negative core beliefs, we're simply going to see what sort of value that that emotion is, is reiterating for us. So for emotion regulation, there are five different types. Um, we're not going to go through these in great detail, um, but there are different ways to regulate our emotions. And, and notice that like, we don't necessarily want to ignore them or try to stuff them away, um, but we want to maybe try to regulate it by acknowledging that it's there. And so there's situation selection, so we could maybe put us in a different Uh, put ourselves in a different situation uh, that'll maybe positively impact our emotion Um, or we can modify the situation. Uh, Maybe somebody is home alone and they're feeling super isolated. Um, Maybe they don't have the option of going someplace else, but perhaps they can add some like uh, really fun music that lifts their spirits. Will that make them happy? I mean, it, it might, or it may just lift their spirits a little bit, and that's one way to help regulate that emotion. The isolation, the feeling of sadness won't be as strong. Um, attention deployment, so focusing on something else. I uh, I don't know how many uh, how many of you work with clients who like to play video games or even if they have the means to to play video games. But um, I find that honestly to be a really helpful way um, to focusing on something else. Now, of course, use with caution. You know, you could then end up playing video games for eight hours and don't attend to anything in life. Like obviously, not not a good not a good thing. But For a temporary sort of shift in focus, video games can be really helpful. Um, Cognitive change. So changing the perception of the experience. I think we've been giving a lot of examples of that. And then finally response modulation. Um, like Still feeling the emotion, but not necessarily responding to it in the way that one normally would maybe recognizing oh my god I'm feeling super anxious normally when I'm super anxious, you know I start I start fidgeting, I start picking at my nails. Um, so instead maybe I'm gonna recognize that I'm feeling super anxious. But my response is going to be to fold my hands and just take a few deep breaths here in the present moment. Um, I might fidget again once I'm done. That's okay. It's still provided a few moments of uh, of uh, modulating my response to that emotion. Remember, everything we do takes practice, um, and it may not work on the first time. Okay, so let's apply some of these tools to an example. Do young. Yun has been on a fairly high dose of an antidepressant medication for a few years after a near lethal suicide attempt. He's doing well on the, med- uh, on the medication and he enjoys being part of a peer support group. He recently met another man, Rick, in group and they started dating. Yun wants to have sex with Rick and feels like the time is right, but Yun is nervous that he will be unable to sexually perform because of his medications. Do is thinking that maybe he should just end the relationship and never date again. Um, so, based on some of the things that we were uh, that we've been talking about about how to respond to emotions, recognizing the emotion is there, what's the message under that emotion? Um, what are some suggestions or what are some ideas that might come up for you about Do and Rick? Next slide. There we go. Okay. Uh, just a quick quote here. Uh, the costs and risks to any program of uh there are costs and risks to any program of action, but they are far less than the long-range risks and costs of comfortable inaction. I think that's such a really, really important quote. I have to remind myself of that sometimes as well. It's amazing what we as human beings get comfortable with. Um, and how we, you know, an example that I sometimes use, you know, I've been doing uh, telehealth, uh, obviously as, as many of you have also, but uh, there was this one time uh, where I was doing telehealth and it was right at dusk. So like when I started the appointment, um, you know, I had good light on me and everything like that. And by the end of the point, the appointment, like I didn't even realize it, I was sitting in like basically complete darkness. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I am so sorry. I was apologizing to my client. I'm like, like the change was so gradual. And I, I didn't even notice, but here I am sitting in this dark room and it was comfortable to just sit there and not do anything to change it. But if I would have recognized like, okay, this room is really dark. I could um, take a moment to turn on a light, do something a little bit differently. Um, and again, it just reminds me of how adaptive we can be to situations and get comfortable in situations that we we don't have to. We don't have to be comfortable in those. We could change them. Okay, these next two toolkits, we're gonna to go through not, not as, in as much depth just because they're, um, it's more about looking at the toolkit as opposed to like these last two where there is more skill um, uh, required. A, in implementing them. But these ones is, is really more about a lot of psycho-ed. So here we have healthy thinking and positive imagery. And so, well, and I guess I should say overcoming negative thinking does require a, a lot of skill. However, we have been talking a lot about that, um, and this particularly relies a lot on CBT concepts, which is one of the reasons we had gone through that on the first day. Now, on page 16, um, there is the ABC Thought Record, and that's a tool you can use um, with clients to help change some of the negative thinking, so to help change some of those automatic thoughts that often pop up in our minds, just like with Doyan, the thought popped up that maybe he should just endless relationship um, that sounds like it's a really negative way to think it's uh, assuming that his problem is not able to be overcome and that's not true it could actually be overcome and it could be worked out but if he followed that negative thought a really healthy fulfilling relationship could have ended um, The ABC Thought Record, which I do have an example of next, and we'll go over that in a moment, um, is a really helpful way to work with somebody to process how their thoughts and feelings interact and how it motivates them to do something um, that maybe is helpful or maybe not helpful. And also, uh, I like to recognize like if there are words, the words should come up a lot or must, or you need to do this those are oftentimes um, not not healthy, or I shouldn't say healthy, not, not always helpful. It places this expectation. So whenever I hear a client say, oh, I really should do this, or I need to do this, I usually try to reframe that because it starts to create an automatic thought of this expectation that may or may not be realistic. So I threw that in there just as kind of like a reminder that if someone um, uses a lot of shoulds, and for those of you uh, who are familiar with Albert Ellis's work for rational emotive behavioral therapy, he kind of coined this term of don't shoot on yourself. And I just love that phrase. It's so helpful because it's not helpful if we're always saying, I should have done this. I should have done this. Well, should I have? I don't know who's to say what I should or shouldn't do. Um, instead, it provides an opportunity to reframe. So here is an ABC thought record. Um, It goes through the situation is A, the thoughts are B, the emotional reaction is C, and then we're gonna give it an intensity rating. So let's say somebody has this experience of voices are telling me to cut myself. Um, So that's the situation, that's A. Um, What are the thoughts that go along with that voice? Well, in this example, um, the person is experiencing the idea that I have no control of my life. It's whatever the thoughts tell me, that's what I have to do, Um, I, I have no control. And I know if I thought that I had no control in my life, if I had no control over what I think and behave, I'd be pretty angry and I'd be pretty sad. And if we were to put those on an intensity rating of one to 10, I could say I'm angry at an eight and I'm sad at a six, perhaps. So this doesn't necessarily solve any problems, but it helps us to see our thinking on paper and it helps us to make sense of what the experiences that that individual is having. And perhaps in this example, uh, looking at section B or the box B, I have no control in my life. Well, let's take a look at that because we can't necessarily change the idea that voices are telling you to cut yourself. I mean, we could maybe long-term, maybe this person's not on medications or they are, and it just doesn't completely do the job. But um, regardless in the moment, maybe we all we can do is try to address the idea that you have no control in your life. So of course, that's where we would implement some of those CBT techniques to find ways in which the person does have control in their life. And maybe their response of being sad or angry wouldn't be as intense as it presently is at a six and an eight. Maybe we could get those to go down to a sad of maybe four and an angry of five. You know, they're still feeling the emotion, but it's a little bit better than what it was. Um, so this is a really, uh, this is a really core A skill for uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I'm going to share with you a resource in the next in two slides. Um, Positive visualization. We talked about this. Earlier, and this is just another way to another opportunity where visualization may be really helpful. Um, A quote here to accomplish great things, we must first dream, then visualize, then plan, believe, and act. But it all starts with dreaming and visualizing of where we want our lives to be. And there is a uh, positive visualization for goal attainment in the instruction materials. So page 56 through 60, something you can use with your clients if you choose. Okay, and here's the resource that I was mentioning before. Um, So I have that, I think it's on my bookshelf, Um, but this book is really, really great. It's not specific to problem-solving therapy, um, but if you do a lot of individual work, uh, and you like CBT, this book is, it's just all worksheets basically. And you could also go online and download all of the worksheets um, if you buy the book. So it's, uh, it's uh, again, these books are so expensive. I don't know why they are. Well, anyways, it's expensive. I believe it might have been around 50 or 60 bucks, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but it's cert- I find it incredibly valuable for the work that I do. Okay. And for my own mental health, so <laughs> okay. And for time's sake, we are gonna we are going to skip the example of cat, um, but you'll have the uh, uh, the PowerPoint. So if you want to read about cats, uh, you're more than welcome to do so. And oh, this is a new slide. Oh, I just wanted to include another quote from a woman, um, and. This quote I thought was really really great, and it's from I don't know if anyone knows Gail Sheehy I didn't she's a uh, a journalist I don't know if she's still around I did a little bit of research on her but then of course I don't remember but anyways ah mastery what a profoundly satisfying feeling when one finally gets on top of a new set of skills and then sees the light under the new door, those skills can open, even as another door is closing. So basically the importance of visualizing and the importance of learning new skills, such as problem solving therapy, or for the clients that you work with a new skill of being able to uh, maybe understand their emotion better or to reframe their negative thoughts better. So what an old school photo too, that typewriter. Oh my Lord, that's old. Okay. So, toolkit number four, the planful problem solving. So, this is what we've been talking about. Just as an overview, here is what that those steps look like. Define the problem and set realistic goals. Generate alternative solutions to solve the problem. Decide which ideas are best and then carry out the solution and determine whether it worked or not. Um, oh, it's so much easier to say that than to actually do it. But page 61 through 64 of the handouts has lots of good information about actual planful problem solving, a lot of which we've talked about earlier today and then on last Wednesday. So I think this is such a helpful bit of information. Many people never actually learn how to effectively solve problems. And, you know, even as I say it, and I think as when we started off today of just like, yeah, some of this is really obvious, but just being able to verbalize it and to follow it and put it out there actually can make a really big difference. And it's really easy for us to assume that, well, everyone knows these four steps to planful problem solving. It's common sense. Well, that's actually an assumption. Many people have not actually been taught. I don't know if I've been taught. I don't, I mean, I know now I'm not perfect at it, but Mike, did I learn how to planfully uh, solve problems? I don't, I don't know if I did. I don't know what what that looked like. So let's not assume that people have these sets of skills and they just choose to not use them. Um, They may, you know, providing the information may make the difference. So teaching skills is a really critical part of, the effectiveness of PST, which is why they developed that really large toolkit. And it's not to give the entire toolkit to somebody and say, here, read this and we'll talk about it. I mean, you pick and choose what's helpful for the client that you're working with, what you think is going to resonate with them. You can give them the sheets or you can read them to them, whatever is easiest. But teaching is super, super important here. Um, Emphasizing the difference from facts and assumptions. So a lot of exploring like what's based in reality and what's not. And I don't mean that from a psychosis perspective. I I often say that of like, is that based in reality? I don't mean to assume that the individual is psychotic. Um, Just mean to say like, it might be based on assumption. It might be based on past experiences but not in the present moment. Remember that cognitive distortions often complicate the problem-solving process. Cognitive distortions, as we talked about last week, they're things that we all experience. Um, I use them on a regular basis, but being aware of them is the first step to being able to to change that narrative. Um, And using a worksheet can be really helpful. And so on page 18, there is a problem-solving worksheet um, that kind of goes through the steps that you can use with your with the person you're trying to help. Oops. Oh, there we go. And again, for time's sake, I am going to uh, skip this example. I like that example. But anyways, we're gonna skip that just so there's time for questions. Um, and before we get to questions, I would like to ask everybody to complete an evaluation. Christina is going to be placing the link to the evaluation in the chat box. Um, But what we would, uh, if if you need continuing ed, um, you will need to complete this to get your certificate. Um, But even if you don't need continuing ed, we'd really love to have your feedback. I actually change this presentation all the time based on feedback that I receive. So like we do do look at it, we actually pay attention to it. um, So it would be really helpful. Um, And you will be able to get a certificate even if you don't need continuing education, but you just have to complete the survey. And thank you so much, Christina, that is now posted in the chat. So, let's look at, I'm going to press on. Okay. So uh, Barack Obama, change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. And a uh, wonderful quote. And, you know, when I'm working with people and we talk about what change needs to happen, I oftentimes ask, um, you know, what's the, you um, what condition are you waiting to change before you make, before you take the next action? Are you waiting to feel more ready? Are you waiting to, um, uh, yeah, are are you waiting for anxiety to dissipate? Um, Oftentimes it's, you know, what the waiting that you're doing it'll never actually come. You know, the anxiety of making a change may never actually go away until you actually make the change. So waiting for that anxiety to go away, waiting for the right time to come, whatever that means, sometimes never comes and it's okay to take that risk and, and try to work for change uh, in the present moment, because um, it will not necessarily come if we don't do anything about it. So, um, with that, I believe that is the end. Um, I hope that this has been helpful for you. I want to remind you that so much of problem-solving therapy relies upon that the toolkits that are available. Um, if you're not able to purchase the problem-solving therapy book, um, that's okay. Well, don't tell the publisher I said that, but still, you know, having the toolkit can, I think, having the basic knowledge of what problem-solving therapy is about, collection of toolkits, having that information, being able to go through it and use it with those that you serve, identifying what tools might be the most helpful. That's really what this uh, intervention is about. And having a background in CBT is certainly helpful, but it's okay if you don't have that. Um, Take a look at those toolkits and um, hopefully they'll address some of the barriers that we've talked about over the past two hours today. And with that, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the participation, and I'm going to stay on the line. If you have any thoughts, questions, um, emotions, if you'd like to share, whatever you'd like.